Welcome to Write Good, the podcast that helps you write good. I'm Raquel S. Benedict, the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction. Coziness. Comfort. Hygge. We all enjoy it. Maybe we have a favorite comfort food, or a favorite piece of comfort media, or a favorite comfort character. And there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes you need a little comfort. But when the pursuit of comfort takes over your entire life, and your entire worldview, your art suffers, and maybe society does too. In this episode, we're talking about why we shouldn't get too comfortable. We are joined once again by Ty Black. Well, thanks for having me on again, Miguel. Glad to be here. Thank you for coming back. We're glad to have you back. Now, the reason we ended up doing this episode is because I think we were both inspired by a bewildering essay posted by Tor on, on their blog. There was this Tor essay that I think it's interesting because it accidentally admits something without realizing what it's admitting to. But this essay compares the popularity of cozy, low-stakes, so-called slice-of-life fantasy novels to 1960s magical sitcoms like Bewitched and I Dream of Genie and The Munsters, and I'm just going to quote at length from this essay. As the outside world has become more hectic and disruptive, the appeal of living happily contained domestic lives seems to become more and more appealing, at least for some of us. Who doesn't want to spend more time at home with a warm drink of your choice and a hobby to keep you occupied? A personal mantra of mine for 2023 is to say no and do less. I don't want to girl boss my way through life, thank you very much. I want to do a manageable amount of work, get a reasonable amount of sleep, and talk to friends and family often enough. If I could blink and have my laundry done and dinner ready, I promise you I would. These goals, while they're not the kind of things that never rate a mention in more epic fare, are the kind of thing that cozy fantasy books understand and tend to revel in. During the pandemic, there was increased interest in crafting, home improvement, and cooking. It is fair to say that aesthetics like cottage core, cottage gore, and goblin core, which all embrace the relaxing nature of homemaking, also experienced a bit of a boom. These trends support a reclaiming of home space activities as restorative, and an extension of important self-care that anyone can engage with and enjoy. So perhaps it's unsurprising that I've noticed similar kinds of narrative focus on magic as a tool for homemaking or family in the recent boom in cozy fantasy books. And I think this essay is so interesting because I do agree in part. I, I definitely agree. Yeah, I think a lot of this is coming from this desire to drop out of the world because the world's fucked up and it's like, I, I can't deal. I need to, I, I gotta go. But what this piece says is uncritically... And that's good. Or or at least that's not mixed. Like, no, this is fine. And the piece even goes so far as to say that not only are these contemporary cozy novels subversive and brave and blah blah blah, but actually those 1960s television sitcoms were actually very subversive and very feminist and... I'm sorry, it's a sitcom from 60 years ago. <laughs> it's not, this is not a radical feminist. Like, I like Bewitched. It's a fun show. It's really charming. 
you know, I dream of Genie. Well, I thought I'd dream of Genie was kind of stupid, but like, they're fine. They're cute. The monsters are cute. They're fine. But if you examine the pr- premise of a lot of those 1960s sitcoms, like I Dream of Genie, like Bewitched, or I Love Lucy, which isn't magical, but kind of in there, there's this current running through them of men trying to contain their wives' crazy outsized energy. Like, the whole thing was bewitched, you know, Samantha's a witch, and and Darren's constantly annoyed because she keeps doing witch things, and he gets mad when she uses magic or something, or... I dream of Jeannie. Jeannie's magic causes all this trouble. I love Lucy. Lucy isn't magic, but she wants to be in the show, and Ricky doesn't want her to be in his show, despite the fact that she obviously has a knack for physical comedy and is a good-looking redhead, because he wants her in the kitchen, right? Like, so there's this context underneath, I think, in, in the real world. I think people saw this sort of second wave of the feminist movement brewing, so in that context, these this popularity of a bunch of sitcoms about men trying to contain their wives' crazy energy, there's a weird little political implication there. And, and I don't think that you're a bad person or you're anti-feminist for liking these shows. I love these shows. I fucking love I Love Lucy. It's, it's really funny. Bewitched is really great. They're charming. But to say that these are progressive, radical, subversive shows is pretty strange. They're conservative. (laughs) You still had the Legion of Decency operating in Hollywood dictating what could and could not be shown on TV. And at least within within horror, the reason we have Texas Chainsaw Massacre, one of the, the most influential films ever made, is because it was in part a response to that image of cozy domesticity that those sitcoms put forth and it was saying this is bullshit this is a lot yeah and i think it's worth noting that this notion of the family really the nuclear family the suburban white nuclear family held up as an ideal was used to reinforce male domination of women it was very anti-queer it was very hierarchical dad is the head of the family mom is the right hand gal the kids are almost like property and it, it and it's a very white image it's a very suburban image it's very reactionary when reactionary political movements want an excuse to attack outsiders want an excuse to attack minorities of any kind they've loved to say they're a threat to our family. Right now, the anti-gay, anti-trans movement is saying, my family, it's a threat to my children. And there's this unspoken idea that your children are your property. So anything that might destabilize that very specific sort of structure is bad and dangerous. It's a threat to my family. You'll hurt my kids by making them gay. And that's what's so bizarre about this article is supposedly SFF is, in the, uh, what does the blob call it, uh, the rainbow platinum age, where it's on this cutting edge of queerness and right. uh, found family and rethinking these conservative institutions. And, and yet this could have been written by Dr. James Dobson. It's absolutely wild. And it's weird to see that from a queer perspective too because I mean while there are queer people who have awesome relationships with their families there are queer people who get married and have kids and have the whole white picket fence thing but for a lot of queer people the family this little nuclear family isn't this 
unambiguous source of happiness and stability a lot of the time. It can be a source of abuse, it can be a source of control and oppression. Sometimes it's the thing you have to break away from in order to be yourself. And that's really, really tragic, but that is a reality for many of us. That it's not just this uncritical source of, oh, this is good. So it's very, it's very, very weird for me to see someone who's ostensibly liberal talking about the perfection that is family values. In fact, you highlighted a quote from it, I think. Because shows like Bewitched, I Dream of Jeannie, The Addams Family, and The Munsters center family values and partnership, they can make jokes about stodgier aspects of American life while still embracing the familial stability at the center of it all in their own conventional ways. So it's straight up saying we can give lip service to the the radical stuff that's going on in the world, but that's just lip service and we are centering family values, which is a very loaded phrase. That's extremely loaded. And it's kind of like the, the word degenerate. As much as I love and adore that word, there's no reclaiming it from the fascists. And with family values, it's like, conservatives have so monopolized that that word over the past 50 60 years that there's no reclaiming it and so when you say that you're going to put you're basically essentially saying the conservatives are right and how many times a day does some uh incel loser go online and say well once once these women get older then they'll want the house and the white picket fits and the kids and us the big strong men will say no. Yeah. And it's like... He will not say no. He'll say, oh my God, yes, please. Exactly, exactly. Oh my God, a girl's talking to me. Exactly. You're, you're playing right into them. And this, is, and this has been a growing trend. Liberals sounding like evangelicals. And yeah. while I was doing research for this episode, I was reading up on the various evangelical websites from the days of yore. And one, the sad thing is, is a few of the evangelicals are better critical thinkers than our, than our, our writer friends at Tor. Hell yeah. Which, which just broke my brain a little <laughs> bit. But uh, in, in one article I linked, they talk about Game of Thrones and how nihilistic and pessimistic it is and how that makes it a bad show. And it's like, well, how many times a day... Do we have uh, the cozy fantasy people saying, well, I don't want that nihilism of George R. R. Martin. Yeah. And it's like, you're saying the exact same things. You're both going toward this center point that is not good. <laughs> yeah, the idea that something that makes me feel uncomfortable is inherently harmful uh, and, is and, a very reactionary idea. Part of being a free person in a free society means you're not going to be comfortable all the time. You're going to see shit that you think is weird and gross, and you have to sort of deal with that and get the fuck over it. Just recently, a man murdered another person on the subway because the victim made him feel a bit uncomfortable. Because he got kind of loud and weird in public. So... This addiction to, we need to chase away anything that makes me feel weird, anything uncomfortable, anything unpleasant. It has, at its extreme, it ends in, in violence. It's a not a good idea. It's not a progressive idea. 
and it becomes this weird authoritarian idea. And there's nothing wrong. I want to say there's nothing wrong with being comfortable sometimes. There's nothing wrong with comfort food. But telling yourself it's this radical thing, it's dishonest. It's like you're eating french fries and telling yourself, no, it's a vegetable. It's okay. I, I put ketchup on it, so it's a salad now. Like, no, motherfucker, you're eating french fries. Exactly. And everybody needs that thing that emotionally recharges them. For me, it's friendships. But it is part of being an adult to give back. <laughs> yeah. And what this uh, desire for coziness strikes me is as a flight from reality. It is a essentially a rejection of reality. And uh, escape modernity, return to tradition. Essentially, yes. And for the liberal, they'll put it in terms that make it sound like they've been on the picket line all day long. <laughs> when we all we all know, being incredibly online people, we've all been just reading the same posts. Yeah. We're all being destroyed by the same algorithm that is there to crush us. And while they have that fig leaf, it is still of the same essence as the conservative flight from reality, which is my beliefs are under assault. I have to find a rural farm to hide away at until the the gay menace has passed. Yeah. I need my bunker, I need my bug out bag, I need my suburban fortress of solitude, I need my sort of magic happy space that nothing can threaten, and by threaten I mean just change, like change is a threat. When Stephen Crowder was talking about how the divorce threatened his family, it didn't threaten his family, it didn't endanger them, it just changed it, and I think changed it for the better because he's a shitty husband and father, and I'm glad, I'm sure his wife is awful, but I'm glad she got the fuck away from him, and I hope she takes the kids with her. That is 100% I am on her side in this divorce. Good for her. It's just, what will disrupt my control? What will take away my control of everything? And 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 while I do I do like coming home from everything at the end of the day, and putting on my lazy pants, and cuddling up with some food and my cat and and you know being cozy but that's not a way forward that's that's not a way forward to change and retreating from the world i'm i'm just seeing this as someone who woman type of person retreating from the world can take you to some kind of bad places cozy domesticity has a false promise when it's your entire life it's not as fun when it's something you have to do not when it's a side hobby not when you're making food for a blog that you're monetizing and not when you're wealthy enough to hire a housekeeper which was quite typical of middle and upper middle class families in the 1950s and 1960s but when it's something you have to do day in and day out and you don't really have other options it's not fun anymore. Housework is work, and this yes. is unpaid work, and often it's very underappreciated. Oh, absolutely. So here's my own family history. My grandmother had to drop out of school really, really young because her mom died, and she, she was, I think, like 10 years old. She had to drop out of school because this was Puerto Rico back in the olden times. So when she was just tall enough to reach the stove because she was the oldest girl in the family... She became the cook, she became the cleaner, she became the domestic caregiver in the house for her father and her brothers. 
And she, that was her whole fucking life, and she hated it. My mother actually didn't learn to cook until college. My abuela Lola refused to let her daughters cook. She refused to let them fucking cook at all. Just basically, she did not want them to have the life that she had. She wanted them to fucking go to school and get, get careers and not be dependent on anyone because she was not happy, and she said, I want better for you. I don't want you to be like me. Oh, what a queen. What an absolute queen. Yeah, she was cool. The only way, because, you know, housewife totally dependent on the husband for money, and, and my grandfather was really like a total skinflint. The only way she managed to get pocket money for herself was by selling Lucy's, like selling loose <laughs> cigarettes to, to teenagers. She fucking oh. rocked. <laughs> oh, she she would have made absolute bank off me, my goodness. She fucking rocked. I grew up in a larger-than-average family, and it was surrounded by families with 10, 12 kids. This image of cozy domesticity is an absolutely false one. It's an aesthetic and nothing more, and they're mistaking the aesthetic for the reality. Because if even the old the old stand-up jokes is one day you wake up and you notice your partner's really annoying. Oh well, your domestic coziness has been shattered there, mm. and uh, and of course it's outside of the the mortgage and the the yard keep, and it is brutally hard to keep a house going, and it's only fun when you're in that 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 period right before you gain independence but you're still maybe junior year of college something like that it's and that's what this feels like here is children playing like adults yeah and being like oh look we're adulting now it is selling a false image of what the the family actually is yeah on my way over here to to record it I had this nagging feeling all day. It's like, oh, this reminds me of somebody. This reminds me of somebody. Who the hell is it? And it's it's every HBO dad, every divorced HBO dad, but in particular Marty from uh, True Detective season one, where he's arguing with his wife uh, and basically says uh, the family is supposed to be a place of peace and tranquility. And his wife just lights him up. It's like, who the hell told you that? Yeah, and and we're not saying this to be disrespectful to people who are stay-at-home moms or homemakers. Absolutely like, not. That is that is your life choice, and if you are having a good time, fucking rock on. It's cool. <laughs> Part of the work of feminism is yeah. to make sure that you have that choice, and to make sure that uh, you know if you decide to choose something else, you can do that as well. Yeah, but something that I think a lot of these little cozy things miss is that. It's work. Being a homemaker is a lot of fucking work. Being like a super mom who takes care of everything. It's a lot of work, and a lot of it's kind of yucky work of of dealing with, like, dirty diapers and wiping noses and things like that. And the aesthetic that we're being sold, I, I feel like we have such this disconnection from traditional lifestyles that people will watch family TikToks videos and family influencers and that's not what their lives are really like it's fake everything's cleaned up for the camera and also they seem weirdly wealthy despite the fact that the husband is the only breadwinner and he does not have a super wealthy job what's going on there i don't understand the super wealthy lifestyle blogs 
what's going on behind the scenes that we don't see is usually this person has a rich husband or inherited money or something. It's not real. <laughs> it's not real. You know that the people, that the sort of return tra trad people who fantasize about farming have not farmed. Because their notion of farming is they always post a picture of, like, a skinny, blonde woman who's pregnant wearing a floor-length white gown standing in a field and it's like that's what farms look like whereas <laughs> actual farmers when they do post will post things like well cow got an abscess had to drain it and got about a gallon of pus it's like not it is not romantic at all they're just like well cow got stuck giving birth had to uh, get a chain to yank the calf out of its vagina that is how actual farmers post that is what actual farming is it is not very glamorous it's super hard it is extremely hard, especially if you're a small independent outfit. I, I live in an extremely rural area where we've had lots of independent farmers, and, and most it's of a, the time, it's a rough time. Most of the time, by the by the time they're in their sixties, most of them look like boiled leather, because when you're operating on razor thin margins, guess what you can't afford? Moisturizer. And it's just the constant stress, like a, yeah. a, a friend and I took a trip to a, a little organic dairy farm in Vermont once because they ran like an Airbnb out of it. They had some yurts and stuff where you could go camping trips. And the dude, the farmer, like, he's, he said that one day, the one day that they were there, he's like, this is actually the first day I haven't had work of some form or another in about six years. And he was giddy and running around dizzy because he, like... <laughs> He didn't know what to do anymore. It's like I don't, I don't remember how this feels. What is happening to me? It is a hard time. And some of those old timers, they don't know how to relax because all they've never known is hard work, and yeah. they will absolutely work you into the ground. Uh, it's, it's not glamorous. It is not glamorous, and it is not cozy. <laughs> The, the other side of that, the sort of modern liberal side is, you know, I'd really love to run a small business. No, the fuck you would. <laughs> no, no, God, no. You know, it would oh. be fun owning an eatery. That's really fun. Oh, God, no. Running a restaurant or a cafe is extremely fun and very reliable and not stressful. And you don't have to deal with disgusting things or get yelled at by horrible Karens or burn yourself on a, on a latte steamer or fucking deal with, like, nasty garbage or flies or, or mice or... No. You, you can tell these things are always made by people who haven't worked in food service because people who haven't worked in food service have this very romantic idea of like, I think I'd like to own a restaurant. And then you, if you've actually worked in a restaurant, you'll know, well, uh, the owner is always drunk or on cocaine at every, any given point in time. The line cooks are usually on cocaine. The busboy is on whippet, so every can of whipped cream in the entire restaurant will be flat. Every <laughs> single one of them, all the time. The servers do whatever they can get their hands on. Nobody's sober. Nobody's having fun. Everybody smells the bear. The bear is pretty fucking accurate, honestly. That show the bear. <laughs> and, it, and it is just like farming. It's grueling work that we don't appreciate or compensate enough. And there's... It, on cooking shows, they can make that look good. Yeah. But in reality, you know, once again, people falling for the aesthetic... But it reality, is stressful. Ooh. It is. There are a lot of injuries in kitchens because you're using knives and heat sources really, really, really fucking fast. 
Yes. It is it is a bad time and I just kind of laugh because the no experience. I think owning a restaurant would be a fun and profitable hobby people like those are the people who end up on a Gordon Ramsay show getting yelled at. Absolutely. Like getting called a fucking donkey or something. That's what happens when you actually try to live that fantasy because it's it's really not fun and you're probably not going to make money. Most restaurants don't make profit in at least like the first 9 months. It's bad. <laughs> It's a it's get at the products. Don't get at the services. Get at the products. <laughs> yeah, don't don't get into services. Don't get into restaurants. There's so many restaurants. And the subsect of uh, the restaurant within the cozy universe is the coffee house. Yeah, it's carried over from fan fiction. There's the the coffee house alternative universe. Where it's like, okay, let's say you like Batman, but instead of wanting to write a story about him doing cool Batman things like beating up his enemies or instead of just, you know, being a garden variety normal pervert and wanting to write a story about Batman sucking a dick, for some reason you decide, I want a story about Batman and Robin and maybe the Joker and Catwoman just sipping lattes in a cozy coffee shop and that's the Coffee Shop AU and they're very popular for reasons I will never understand. And now we're seeing that kind of ported over to traditionally published sci-fi fantasy. There's always a, a wacky cast of characters, but the characters are sort of these stock characters, stock character types, because if you learn to write from fan fiction, you never really learn how to do the hard work of actually developing characters on your own, so you just kind of pluck from standard types and shove them in there. Uh, much like restaurants, it's like... Uh... Coffee houses or restaurants, but even more so because the margins are even thinner. Oh, they're thin. <laughs> and people are grumpy because, like, they haven't had their coffee yet. In the morning, you are dealing, all of your customers are people who haven't had their coffee yet. And they're all ordering from the so-called secret menu of fucking bullshit drinks that are way too elaborate and I hate them. I feel like if you order, like, a, a secret Starbucks drink off the se secret menu, quote-unquote, on TikTok, the barista has a right to punch you. Absolutely. Without be being wonderful. arrested. It'd be wonderful. Yes, I, I would be wholeheartedly in favor of I that. I would 100% give baristas the power of vigilantism. And, and I don't... I don't really... There's an element here where it's it's... They've people watched enough to where they're just like, oh, wouldn't it be great if all these people I see in here on a regular basis if we were friends? Because I don't know of any coffee house, and I've been to many of them in big cities and small and in neighborhood ones and chain ones, where there's this friendly atmosphere where everybody's getting to know each other and having a grand old time you know you're right there will usually be small groups of people because they've come together with their friends but it's not like cheers yeah, it's, like... it's not like you walk into the door of the coffee shop and it's like norm <laughs> where everyone knows your name no not not really it's not exactly a community and you know i love hanging out in coffee shops i fucking love coffee shops but like it's not a substitute for friendship or community and that's and that's really where kind of what we're talking around is uh, this desire for cozy just shows how separated and atomized we are from each other. Yeah, it is a little tragic in that, oh, if only I could have this, if only I could have this togetherness. And I absolutely sympathize with that. And we all have so, our own 
little fantasies. And there are times when when I'm at work and I'm like, man, wouldn't it be nice to just drop out of society and like go live in a yurt? Like that'd be pretty great, but that's not real, you know. A feature of a lot of good domestic art that focuses on this fantasy is this sense of the temporary and the sense of the bittersweet. I understand the impulse to fantasize about running away from everything, but deep down you know it can't last. Deep down you know it's not forever or it's impossible. And I think that's what a lot of this media is missing. It's missing that really powerful, really beautiful sense of the bittersweet because you know deep down you can't really escape the world forever by going to a coffee shop or you can't escape the problems of the world forever by hanging out with your partner at home but but you can you can do that and it's nice but it is only temporary and that's part of why it's beautiful and why it's powerful and and I think what we're getting at, too, is that we're getting this very individualistic sense of self-care and consumerism often sold to us, marketed to us, especially marketed to women, as a solution to the problems instead of any kind of activism, instead of community, instead of social change. We're being told, take these individual solutions that don't really change things. It's, it's a rejection of class action and solidarity. It's a condemnation to isolation. I'm thinking of Jordan Peterson, the conservative philosopher question mark beef coma victim who says that you should clean your room before you try to criticize the world now that's not terrible advice like yeah get your shit together that's very very good advice but what this can do is it can spin into this relentlessly trying to perfect yourself to the point where that's all you're doing and you're avoiding the world's problems because let's be real none of us is going to be fucking perfect no no one ever is and you especially don't become perfect in a vacuum. <laughs> yeah. Sitting by yourself, like, the, some of the things that have helped me come out of the pandemic and, and figure things out for myself it has been taking part in mutual aid groups and doing really good work with other people who are kind of interesting, driven people and, and getting something out of that. Exactly. Because uh, the self-care cycle that it creates is just this relentless consumerism that yeah. is causing the problem and can never solve the problem and at the same time it's it's getting dumber and more insulting with each <laughs> you know with each decade i'm already annoyed the way i'm advertised to as a man i I would go ballistic if I was a woman and being talked down to like that. It's just oh like, god, the constant infantilization of like, oh, is your tummy empty? Have this yummy little treat. You were a good girl today. Are you sad? Are you sad? Oh, sweetie, you're so pretty. Have this beauty cream. Don't you feel better? It's so. Oh, I'm, I'm not. A, I don't. I don't enjoy it. It's it's not good. I'm not a fan. I don't know. The male side seems kind of funny. Like crush it, crush dandruff with this powerful shower weapon. Your shampoo is the same color as gunmetal gray. Uh, shave your beard with this hair bazooka. 
<laughs> it's so funny the the self care hygiene products aisle where that very direct line where the women's stuff becomes the men's stuff because we go from pastels to like gray, gray, black, red, gray. It's like suddenly we've entered the Decepticon aisle. <laughs> I've been blessed to know many goth women over my life, and uh, I'm pretty sure they would like some of the old black razors designed for them. Man. That's an untapped market there. It's so goddamn funny. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, but, but, and, and again, we want to stress there's nothing wrong with self care. It's good and necessary. And, and especially if you are doing out activism type things, you got to recharge. You got to take some time off. You got to touch some grass, take a shower, do a little yoga sometimes. This is good. But it's like, okay, this is you recharging so that you can take care of shit. Not like, well, that's enough. You used a moisturizer because we've seen where that leads. And where that leads is people calling you ableist because you say, hey, maybe you shouldn't buy so much clothing from Shine because they hurt the people who make it. It, it. It's people saying, like, actually, you're a misogynist for telling me to buy my own groceries instead of getting a delivery guy and, and yelling at him for getting the wrong avocado. And, and then getting up and uh, stalking him in the store. Then stalking he... him at the store and getting really mad at an internet cat for some reason. I don't fucking know. That was st one of the strangest things. I don't know. But, but it's very like 1960s new left where instead of looking outward, the left, as if you want to call it that, started to slowly look more inward. And when that happened, you really saw this downhill slide of the leftist project. Previous generations of leftist activists had a much greater emphasis on mass movement, mass material action, and, and the sort of like new left 60s onward was a lot more about individual, the inner self. And now what we're seeing is this really fascinating overlap between, like, right-wing conservative trad reactionary stuff and then crunchy, kind of hippy-dippy Birkenstock food co-op stuff. Right now, Goop, like Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop and Infowars actually sell a lot of the same products and supplements that are just labeled differently. And the more you use the products and the more... You don't feel better and the harder you try to use them you get locked into this incredibly destructive cycle that you can't uh, that's a uh, really hard not not just to break out of but to see that the cycle is there and it's in the case of conservatism it generally leads to conspiracy theory and paranoid thinking and yeah. trying to find an answer for why am i miserable why am I miserable? The conspiracy took my kid away. It's the conspiracy's fault my children don't talk to me anymore. Like, no, they went away because you're horrible and they don't want to fucking talk to you anymore, Grandma. And, and with the... Uh... They're tired of hearing about QAnon. They just want to have a normal Thanksgiving. God. And... Oh, well, my... I hate it when it happens like a disc freaking slipped. Ooh, Jesus. No, just, uh... <laughs> like a like a CD from the nineties. Oh, okay. Like I was trying to hone in on this one thought. You, you got a well. That's what I call music slipping. Yes, exactly. <laughs> nice. Um, Pure mood slipping all over the place. And the side effect of of these doubling down on these individual consumerist choices is that we are further further disempowered, hmm. and the corporations get richer and richer. Yeah, because they 
do not give a single shit (laughs) about their customer's well-being. They care about whether the customer is still buying their product. And 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 it's and it's bizarre that I'll keep harping on this, but it's bizarre that people are mistaking the aesthetic for the reality. Yeah, yeah. And and while I'm gonna say I don't think it's. I don't think that if you enjoy Legends and Lattes, you're a Nazi. <laughs> I don't think that's the no. case. I don't think if you like old episodes of I Love Lucy, you're like a trad wife or anything. But what I'm saying is that this trend, as a trend, it can be a little concerning. And I feel like we're reaching a point where it's getting a little far where I'm starting to worry. Not like, oh, you read Legends and Lattes? Well, obviously you don't support women's rights like no that's a fucking ridiculous yeah. comment but but i'm starting to see shit that's getting a little weird and and when tor this major sff publisher can publish an article basically saying yes 1960s sitcoms are the ideal life i'm like whoa because that is that's what conservatives believe that's what newt gingrich fucking believed Speaking very generally, historically, this is kind of the same split, it, it, or this this feels like it rhymes with the mid to late 70s cultural split that happened, where yeah. you had either a bunch of people get normal, or they were joining cults. In the case of the Christians, it was like, uh, it occurs to me just now that this was very eugenicist. They were just like, okay, there's no hope politically for conservatism but we can outbreed the secularists. So we just need to have as many kids as possible. Yeah, that's what the quiverful movement came from. Exactly. Every baby you have is an arrow in the quiver and and because you're declaring war against, you know, thing I don't like <laughs> against whatever thing is not this extreme version of Christianity. So so let's talk a little bit about that trad at homestead or fantasy. This is something that you're way more uh, accustomed to. I had more of a hippy-dippy upbringing. So yes, a, a, a little bit of my background. I was raised in the Protestant cult, uh, IBLP, which stands for Institute in Basic Life Principles, which is the most benign-sounding organization that just immediately sends chills down your spine. I grew up in the rural south, deep in evangelical and dominionist uh, culture. My summers were spent at a uh, dominionist political activist camp called uh, Teen Pact. Oh, holy shit. Called what? Teen Pact. So you went to Jesus Camp, like in that documentary. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Ooh, wow. In case we were much more political-focused than spirituality-focused, but there was a, a healthy blend of both, and every bit is insane. After... A 10-year process and then a four- to six-year process of leaving, after that, of leaving conservatism. Here I am now. And it's incredibly discouraging watching everything that was segregated in my corner of the world growing up has now become mainstream. Like, um, for those who remember Ray Comfort, the Banana Man, I saw him speak every year at IBLP's uh, general conference in Knoxville. And the person I always looked forward to, because I was a political nerd as a kid who deserved to be thrown in a locker, my favorite speaker was David Barton, who 
became Glenn Beck's historian. Oh my God. Yes. The person who's always talking about the biblical foundation of the constitution, that David Barton. I, I saw him all the bloody time growing up. Oh my God. That is wild. And, and since my family did not consider it weird enough that we were all those things already, they were Pentecostal on top of it. So I have seen every batshit insane stripe of Christianity you could possibly Are those the conjure. people who, like, speak in tongues? Yes. Oh, wow. Yes. We were not snake handlers, but there were tongue speaking. Whoa. I was a Unitarian, man. I wish I had been Unitarian. I don't even know what it is. I still don't. (laughs) A Unitarian friend of mine also says that. (laughs) Yeah. What do Unitarians believe? I don't know. The first thing I heard in the mornings was focus on the family's uh, flagship radio broadcast with Dr. James Dobson as one of the the hosts on there. We listened to that while we ate breakfast and my dad went off to work. And then the afternoons was Rush Limbaugh and... uh, not really much at night because we didn't have TV or anything like that. And with that came homeschooling curriculum. And there are advantages to homeschooling. Like, uh, I am severely dyslexic. And if left to the, the wiles of our local severely underfunded public school, I probably would have been put in special education and left to flounder. While my mom took the time and and much against my will as a as a four and five-year-old forced me to read (laughs) she destroyed Uh, your love of reading how dare she how dare she (laughs) and that one act saved my life (laughs) multiple times and so there there is advantages to that if you want to really challenge your kids you can and if you're gonna be really lazy about it there's not much to stop you either and in, in the homeschooling curriculum, which through grade school was Mennonite, and then junior high and high school was from Becca, which is hyper-fundamentalist, uh, from uh, the Pensacola Bible School, I believe. The, I, f- I forget their name off the top of my head, but they're, they are actually the crazier version of who produced the rest of my textbooks, Bob Jones University. Oh, wow. <laughs> the crazier version of Bob Jones University is yes. <laughs> quite a thing to say. I will give Bob Jones credit for this. Even if they hated an author like D.H. Lawrence, they may not come out and say that he was gay, but they would have a whole unit on him and his work and show why it was considered a classic and for reasons unknowns to me they had a massive section on nathaniel hawthorne which was my first contact with anti-puritanism and it was a revelation to me oh that's cool and with atia and they put the they essentially took atia and iblp Spent all that time, and I'm still not entirely sure what the difference between those two organizations are because they're so closely knit. They're almost like a Scientology and Sea Org, uh, for right. example. But they would essentially take all those 1950s and 60s attitudes 
and makes them theology. And so one of the things we had, and this could could be ripped right out of these conservative sitcoms, is we had the thing called the uh, umbrella of authority, where the father is under God, and then it's the mother, and then it's the children. And if you disobey the mother or the father, you get out from underneath the protection of that umbrella, meaning you could be punished by God. Wow. Which set up this incredibly rigid hierarchy. And right. that's and that's essentially taking the attitudes that is being lionized here in this essay, so making them theology, and then imposing that as reality on people fleeing from reality here and while there are parts that i appreciate especially about the reading and stuff it was mostly an extremely boring extremely fearful and extremely confusing way to grow up and so so much about of this comes down to control mm. and making sure because in their eyes, the tratty eyes, and what's subtly hinted at, and the, the, then you have the, the liberals who kind of graffiti their spray paint over it and call it progressive. Essentially, you have this whole system that is treating women and children as if they are property, but property that can revolt against you. Yeah. property that can break away and so that's essentially what this comes down to yeah yeah is locking somebody away in their consumer box and then either one wilting if you're if you're if someone's a liberal wilting before the state of the world or if you're a conservative getting increasingly matter at the state of the world yeah. there there is nothing glamorous or 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 wholesome about it well it's not glamorous because i know because whenever these trad wives actually post a photograph of what they've cooked it looks like fucking dog food none of these bitches can cook <laughs> it's incredibly funny to me i love it every like here's my homeschooling blah 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 here's the food and it's like i this is fucking trash what are you, you can't boil an egg it looks like you put a packet of cream cheese and a bag of baby carrots into a crock pot and just turned it on that's your dinner it's so funny you bring that up because... They cannot would, cook! It's true! It's true! Because I, I would read Redwall and 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 for some reason I, I was able... For somehow I was able to sneak George R. R. Martin into my house at one point. Wow! And, uh... Which I think I, I, think I read... Oh, Gabriel. and those those authors are both fat kids. They love food. They love... Yes. They will just stop in the middle of a chapter and describe somebody's lunch in immense detail. And, and I kept getting so baffled of why they were describing food. It's just like, why are you doing this? What the hell? And it's like, I was like 24 when it finally hit me. It's like, oh, food's supposed to be good. <laughs> oh my God, dude. Oh no. Oh no. And while these seem like, the touch back on that, while this shrieking away from reality seems like the only possible option, the effect it has takes decades to work out of <laughs> yeah. and that's if you're lucky or blessed enough 
to notice, oh, hey, this is fucked up. What's wrong with this? Yeah. <laughs> and this is my big worry with the, these liberals is like, because I saw it so many times with my friends from college, they would break free of fundamentalism. They'd have their wild years and then they would just go back to it. Yeah. It's like, you were free. Why the hell are you going back there? And uh, that's, it's like, that's the pattern, you know? Yeah, exactly. That's what you know how to do, and you don't know how to do anything else. So of course you go back to it. it it's really sad, but I get it. And um, and, it, and it's that desire for the the comfort and the knowable. Yeah, that leads to that. And uh, comfort, knowability, and safety. Yes. So, so that's the the trad homesteader fantasy. We have something else. I think there's a more liberal version of it, which is sort of the cozy semi-urban fantasy so instead of being rural a lot more it's urban or suburban in a nice little city that's not really named and instead of having a, a homestead on on the prairie the fantasy is to be a small business tyrant which in another way is is another kind of small petty tyrant running your small little mini kingdom exactly. and i find it very interesting that this tour piece uses the phrase found family to describe oh. a workplace if you've worked in the world if you've lived and worked in a world you know that if the hiring manager says to you oh yeah this company we're like a family here you gotta fucking leave like yeah, do not even finish that interview just leave, just jump out a window fucking get out because yeah. every company or, or business that describes itself as we're like a family here is going to be just a horrible place to work where there's zero sense of appropriate personal boundaries where you're not respected where you're taken for granted where the pay is probably going to be shit and when you stick up for yourself it's like how dare you you're hurting my feelings almost why would i care if the boss's feelings are hurt because i want to fucking raise like i don't know so referring to found family at a workplace just gets my hackles up because no, your your workplace isn't your family. You might like your coworkers. I've worked in places where I really liked my coworkers and was friends with my coworkers, but like they're not your fucking family. The fantasy here is it's still very isolated from the world in many ways or you have limited social interactions. All of your relationships are are hierarchical like boss or employee and or transactional like you're meeting your customers or your clients. They're not your friends. Your customers are your customers. They're your clients. You're there because you are exchanging goods and services for currency, and that's it. And that is okay. That is what a business is. But that's not a community. That's not a family. These things are very clearly written by people who haven't worked retail or food service. So my question is, if this is your comfort, who are you comforting exactly? And it sounds kind of like we are comforting customers and not workers. If you see yourself as a customer, first and foremost, I think there was a big shift in the American consciousness sometime around the 20th century, where we stopped seeing ourselves as community members, we stopped seeing ourselves as citizens, and we started seeing ourselves as customers instead. And what this project has done has been to undermine our solidarity with other people, undermine our solidarity with our other workers, and have us identify primarily with the corporations, with the businesses that we do business with. We identify ourselves as fandoms, as consumers of particular media, 
and not as people who are in a community. And part of that is it is easier to deal with a known quantity like Captain America than it is to deal with another human being and their wants and desires and needs and problems. Uh, yeah. It is incredibly easy to, to want to retreat into the safety of a fantasy, but that way lies misery. Because Captain, Captain yeah. America and its uh, rights owner, Disney, will never love you. I mean, we know that people who are into really big into fandom are by and large not happy, well-adjusted people. They're not having a good time. No. They're getting into fights about shits. <laughs> like, that's not a good way to live. To go back to what you were talking about, uh, the boss and the job as family, yeah. that is straight-up business school propaganda, Ooh. where they'll tell you, they'll paint this picture of the business world as this great and innovative place of smart people doing smart things and all getting along. And the reality is, like, it's just a way to make you work harder. It is a way to, to, yeah, to put course. aside your actual responsibilities to your family. God, one of the most horrifying uh, experiences I had in, in business school was listening to a presentation recruiting thing by PwC. And they had some sort of South African guy showing pictures of their team having mandatory fun. Ooh. And the guy really fucking said with his whole chest uh, we work hard but we play hard too and then he stopped himself his face kind of turned red and he stepped away to let the next person speak <laughs> I see I can't hear that line without thinking of the Simpsons where they're in the gay stealing <laughs> which you know I'd be cool yeah. with that That I, I would be fine if that was my found family workplace uh, if it was me and a bunch of really, really hot steel mill workers. Yeah, and, uh, and they're probably union, too. Yeah, yeah, I'd be, I'd be in favor of that. Which... Unfortunately, that's not what we're going to get in Cozy <laughs> Fantasy, which is a real shame. If, if you do have a family at your job, it's going to be your brothers and sisters in your union who have to deal with the same shit that you have to put up with day in and day out. And who are going to be yeah. by your side when it's time to call the employer t to task? Yeah. And every every single time with these with these business types, you know, in these we're a family business. It's like somebody hits sixty, somebody hits seventy, and they're like, "Well, uh, now it's time to move on to the next phase of my life and focus on on my family." You yeah. loser. The time to focus on your family was when they were young and when they were growing up and when they were teenagers and when they were going off to college and becoming an adult. You've missed it. You fucking missed it. And that's another really baffling part of, the, of this essay is the, the author points out, well, people want this cozy domestic fantasy because as a partially as a result of disappointment with corporate America. And within the essay, there's a hyperlink there. And I thought for sure this will be about accountants at PwC or Ernst & Young or Deloitte having to work 
70 to 80 to 90 hours a week. And no, it was an article that went to layoffs. Mm. It's like, excuse me? That's what the business mm. world does. Is yeah. the cheapest and quickest way to increase revenue, to increase net income is to get rid of the most expensive factor you have in there, and that's employment. And it's it, it boggles my mind that someone would be so delusional as to think that businesses wouldn't lay people off. It's like I, if I, the where you were employed is not your family, and it will never be yeah. your family. Your family is your actual family, and and um, something I want to tackle here with this whole notion of found family. Usually, uh, I think it's our good buddy Kurt from uh, Blood Knife Magazine who pointed out one day that most found families within stories operate like your co-workers at a job who you're on good terms with. Yeah. Yeah. And there's usually very little tension or drama between the members of this found family. And so for the billionth time, I want to show a counterexample from Poppy Z. Bright's Exquisite Corpse. Within that, uh, which is about the AIDS. It's the found family of two serial killers uh, falling in love and then committing various acts of mutilation and necrophilia. But it takes place in the 90s New Orleans, in the middle of the AIDS crisis. And the, and the fear of, of AIDS hangs so thickly over that book. And, and not just the, the fear, but the, the, the death and the sadness and the, 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 the ravaging and destruction of this community is as thick as the humidity within New Orleans. And so you have all these queers who some of them don't like each other. Some of them will tell you some incredibly repulsive stuff. And yet there is never a point within those books, within that book, where you're where you don't know that these queers are going to have each other's backs. That it goes beyond their personal attitudes toward each other is that they're in this together as queers and in fact they they take in this this kid who got kicked out of his own home for being gay and and there is some genuinely gut-wrenching stuff that some of the gay men reveal in that and yet that is much more believable that is much more powerful than all the, the, the cozy schmaltz cotton candy that you can pile on. Because what when you intentionally set out to make something cozy, instead of trying to pursue the truth of a situation, uh, the truth of what found family looks like, the struggles and the heartache and all that comes with it, then you really you accidentally end up in really dark places because you have sacrificed truth and reality for this aesthetic and that leads to shitty art that's how you get house and the house by the uh, the blue house by the Carilion sea or whatever it is that is accidental accidental apologia for residential schools and it is not writing good mm, it is not it's not writing good 
Anyway, so why don't we wind it down? Before we go, where can people find or support your work? Or what what would you like to plug? You can find me on Twitter at, at FeastLast. I'm usually over there shitposting about horror. But that's about it. <laughs> oh, if you want the exact opposite of a, a cozy suburban novel, or, or rather a novel that uh, takes to task the suburban ideal, I highly recommend a book coming out this fall from Andrew F. Sullivan and Nick Cutter, The Handyman Method. It is uh, okay. fantastic. Yes, that's our friend. Yes. Friend of the pod who was on a previous episode to talk about uh, the gentrification of horror. Yes. Yeah, he's good. Yeah, uh, he's good. Right. Okay. Well, thank you for coming well, on, for and thank you all for listening. If you like what you heard, head to patreon.com slash writegood and subscribe. Until next time, keep writing good. This has been Write Good with Raquel S. Benedict. Hosted by Raquel S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. Theme song by OK Glass. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittystasis.com. That is R-I-T-E G-U-D at kittystasis.com. If you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood. This has been a Kitty Steezes production. KittySneezes.com in color. <laughs>